Luke uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 17, I want to read to you guys what the study that we're going to be reading out of, and then we'll jump into it. So beginning with verse 1, it says, Then he spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard men. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then they also brought infants to him, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For if such is the kingdom of God, assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So two parables that are given here this morning. One was the parable of the persistent widow and the other one the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I see two major themes that we have here in this verses this morning. One on prayer and the second on humility. So let's dive right into the very first verse of chapter 18. We're in Luke's gospel chapter 18 this morning. It says, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So I I love how... At the beginning of this chapter in particular, he gives you the meaning of the parable right off the bat. We don't have to try to uh, break it down allegorically because Jesus gives us the meaning right there or Luke gives us the meaning right there. So it leads me to my first point this morning. Point number one, pray and don't lose heart. That's, That's the main theme of this parable that Jesus wanted to teach them. And we know that the parables that Jesus gave, they were earthly illustrations of heavenly truths. And we love it when in a Bible study someone begins to tell us a story, something that 
happened to them in their life because all of a sudden it t- turns our focus and, and our attention towards that, that story and helps us to better understand a heavenly truth that the word is trying to explain. In verse 2, saying, there was a certain city, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. So here's the first character in this movie that we're watching. First, there's a judge, right? A judge is, is a determiner of right and wrong in a case. Now, judges, they must be fair. They must be just and righteous. But there's some things that we notice right away on this judge. The first attribute that this judge has tagged to him is that he doesn't fear God. And secondly, he doesn't regard man. So that's not really what a a righteous judge would be like. You see, for a judge to not fear God, that means that judge is an ungodly judge. And secondly, if he doesn't regard man, that means he doesn't abide by the laws of God or man. He kind of just does what he does without care. And I'm sure, you know, there's probably judges like that in our legal system today because they get power and they, they, they get prideful and they think that they now are the law. But this is the type of character that first we're introduced to in this parable. It says in verse 3, Now there was a certain widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. So now the second character is a woman who is a widow. Her husband has died. She goes to this judge and asks for vindication, for justice, to be avenged by some sort of opponent, an adversary. So this is probably a lawsuit that's going on here. In verse 4, And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So now the judge here, he wasn't going to do what was right in the widow's case for some reason, because he's unruly, he's ungodly. She comes to him with the case and says, hey, I've been wronged in such and such way. And he says, ah, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. He's like Judge Judy or something. He's just saying, you know what? I don't, I don't have time for your case today. But the widow's persistent plea to him was discomforting to the judge after a while. She kept asking and asking for that vindication. So because of the continual discomfort that he was receiving from this widow, he took on her case just to be rid of the situation I realize, look, people do things that they don't want to do in order to change their situation. We do it all the time. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes we're in a situation we don't like, so we do things in order to change that situation. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's bad. I think the importance is our motive. What is our motive in the decisions that we're making? Why are we changing our situation? Why are we acting a certain way? Because in the example here of the parable, the motive of the judge is the selfish one. 
He just wants to be rid of this widow, so he's going to start taking care of her case. I was reminded of the movie The Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if you guys have seen that film. Great film. But there's a portion of that movie where the convicted felon, Andre Dufresne, he starts to write a, a letter a week to the state because he wants to have a, a library in the prison. So every week he, he, he writes a letter to the state asking for a donation of books so he can start this library every week. And he does it for six years. And then finally, after six years, one day, the warden receives all these boxes and boxes of books and so many books. And they're kind of mad at Andy. They're like, hey, wh what is all this stuff? It's, it's addressed to you. And he opens the letter. There's a $200 donation in it. And in the letter, they respond, hey, we've been getting your letters. We've attached $200 for you to start your library in the prison. And we've given you a, a very generous amount of books to start your library. And then they say, please, we consider this matter closed. Stop writing the letters. And he says, wow, it only took six weeks for me. I'm sorry, six years for me with a letter a week. Next time I'll write two letters a week. Maybe it'll go a little bit faster. And I realized, look, at the squeaky wheel, it gets the oil sometimes in life, doesn't it? Whether the, the constant begging and asking for a thing will help that wheel get the oil. And we've seen that in our life. And this is what happened with here with the judge where he's being constantly nagged by this widow. So he says, okay, I'm going to help her case. And then look at verse 6. And then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? So he's saying, look, look at how an ungodly judge is granting this widow's plea. And then he, he gives us now the spiritual meaning. He's saying, look at the word for avenge here, shall God not avenge? It means to vindicate, to do what is just and righteous to those who are praying for deliverance. And he says, shall God not vindicate, avenge his own children, his own elect who cry out day and night, though he bears long with them, even though it's taking a long time? You see, if an unrighteous judge will grant a plea of a, a widow's weariness, out of weariness from this widow, how much more will a good God grant a plea from his child? This is a God who desires to pour out love on you guys. God is always desiring to pour out his love on you. We simply have to be open to receive it. Now Jesus, by ask, I, I love it in the Bible whenever I see, shall God not, and then it ends with a question. Because really what the writer is saying is this is what God will do. Remember this time era when Luke was writing this, when Jesus was saying this there in Jerusalem. Remember what was happening to the nation of Israel during this time. They were under the Roman government's authority. They had already experienced captivity of, of being in Babylon for 70 years as servants to the Babylonians. And the Lord allowed them to go back into the land 
And they were still, during this time era, they were waiting for the Messiah to come to this world. They were waiting for that, the one that was promised all the way back in the beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve. See, Adam and Eve, they lived with a relationship with God like, like nobody ever had it. Or they were innocent. They were without sin, walking in the cool of the garden. But we know the account that Satan came in as a serpent and deceived Eve. Told her, look, if you just eat of this fruit, you're going to be like God. And they longed for that. They wanted to be more like God. So because of that, she ate of the fruit and then she gave it to her husband. I, I myself, and uh, I know many people who believe that Adam followed after Eve because of his love for her. Because he loved her in that moment more than he loved obeying God, which is a sin. But he saw my wife just ate of this fruit. Where she goes, I'm going to go. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's something that we should do as believers. I'm saying, look, that was what he probably did. And because of that moment, sin has since plagued our lives. It's played it, plagued every avenue of the world. The whole creation has begun to fall apart. Animals begin to eat people. And, and now there's this war within ourselves of sin. And God began to speak to people to tell them, look, he gave Adam and Eve the promise. There is going to come a son from you, Eve, was going to crush the head of that serpent who lied to you. And they were waiting and waiting. They were waiting for this Messiah to come so that they, he could put an end to this suffering from sin that we have. We celebrated Christmas yesterday, did we not? And do you realize the celebration that's behind that? It's that Jesus, the Messiah, came to this world to save us from sin. The Israelites, during this time, they desired a savior, and here Jesus is standing in front of them, speaking this parable to them, the long-awaited Messiah. But some of them thought that Jesus was going to go there and deliver them from Rome. And they were disheartened when they saw Jesus crucified. They're like, man, I, I thought this was the guy who was going to take the government's yoke off of us. And I think sometimes even today as Christians, we think that we need a Messiah as president. We need a Messiah to come and just to fix all the immoral things that are happening in, in America, but that's not what's promised to us. And by all means, that's not, that's not going to happen. Jesus is our Messiah, and we wait for him and him alone. Jesus was concerned with these people about what was eternal. He wasn't concerned about becoming king at that moment of Israel. He already was king of Israel. They just didn't recognize his eternal crown yet. And the nation is going to be redeemed. Don't, don't lose out on that part. Because look, one day the political realm, it's all going to be submissive to the government of Jesus and his rule. 
and all this Democrats, liberals, Republicans, and conservatives, all those things, it's all going to be one nation under God. And to the Republic, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But it is, that's the reality, that's the truth. Now, I recognize this too. In this point uh, of Jesus' life, look, he's headed for the cross right now. And he knows that he is going to go to the cross so that he can defeat death and sin. God is about, about to answer the prayer of the Israelites. And in verse 7, when he's talking about, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them, I realize that part of that fulfillment, part of God answering the prayer of the Israelites and of the people is for Jesus to go to the cross and to die for the sins of the world. And that affects us to this day, even if we're not Jewish. That affected the whole world. And God does not do things on our timetable. He does them on his timetable. And at his pace. Look, God is not in a hurry. That's because he's never late. Sometimes we want him to be early, don't we? So we're like, God, please just bring this thing into my life now. Please, Lord God. God, just teach me patience now. Give me patience right now. But God has to teach us patience, doesn't he? And we have to grow. But one of the things I love about God is he's never late either. He's always right on time. Have you guys ever prayed for something for a long time? Have there been things in your life that you've waited on and just asked for the Lord to bring to you or to deliver you from or to perform in your life? Sometimes, when it becomes a long time, hope can diminish. Hope begins to to weaken as time moves on at times. I'm reminded of a mother and father that I'm very close friends with that we've been praying for their son to be saved. A son who's lost in the world and who, who has vices in his life that have gotten a hold of his mind and his heart. And as a church, there was a season where we as a whole church prayed. I remember we prayed and we fasted for this son. And they had been struggling with this for years. And they've been praying and weeping and shedding tears and leaving their lifestyle to go try to minister to their son and to go try to pull their son in from the world. But everyone has free will, right? They all have a choice. And as a church, when we prayed and fasted for this young man in particular, who's also a friend of mine, the Lord spoke to the mom, gave her peace. She came and, and shared with us, look, the Lord, in our, ti- in our time of prayer and fasting, the Lord has given me peace and confirmation of what he's going to do. And we're still praying for that family. But it's been a long time. But I don't believe that God would allow us to, well, he, I don't think I should say, I don't think that God is stirring it up in our hearts to continue to pray for this young man unless he was going to do something. That's my belief. I believe God is going to do something. I, I'm reminded of the woman with the flow 
of blood for 12 years in the Bible. She had a flow of blood for 12 years. And she went to all types of doctors and physicians and people who can try to heal her, but none were successful. But she heard that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming through her town. So in a, a crowded group, she went through all the crowd and reached out and thought, if I could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, if I could just grab onto his robe, I'll be healed. And when she grabbed onto his robe, that, that par- part of his robe that she touched, that was her point of activation of faith. She was activating the faith that was in her heart, in her mind. And in that moment, she was healed. And suddenly Jesus said, whoa, everybody stop. Somebody touched me. And the disciples are looking at Jesus like, dude, everyone's touching you. Like you're surrounded by multitudes of people right now. Everyone wants to touch you. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is different. Someone touched me. I felt power leave me. And the woman said, it was me. I have a sickness in my life that I needed to, to touch you. And I believed if I could just touch his his robe, maybe I would be healed, and she was healed in that moment. Her faith was activated. When we put oil on, on, on people's head and pray over them, the oil isn't magic oil that I like, did some ritual over. The oil is just symbolic of the Holy Spirit, but when I put oil on people, our faith, it, it, it gets activated through that. We see that in the Bible. When Paul was struggling with the thorn in his flesh. He began to ask God to take away whatever that infirmity was. He would say, look, remove it. And he even says, look, this thorn in the flesh came by Satan, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. He began to ask God, God, please remove this thorn in that I have in my flesh. And when he asked him three times, God answered him and told him, look, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. You see, I'm reminded of the acronym PUSH, P-U-S-H. And it stands for pray until something happens. Pray until something happens. And, And with that, you see, when you're praying for that trial that you're in, sometimes God delivers us. Sometimes God tells us to endure because it's going to be a long ride. But either way, we see that God can still give us peace in it. I like to think of the illustration as we're on top of a mountain, right? And we look out and we see that we're, we're in the season of blessing in our life where God has been blessing us. We're having this mountaintop experience and God's like, we're with Jesus and Jesus is like, yeah, like I brought you up here. This is amazing. You're like, man, this is so great. And he's like, you see that mountain all the way over there? You look out and you're like, yeah, I see that mountain. He's like, well, we're going to be over there next year. But on the way to that other mountain, there's a valley we got to go down. And there's hills and rocks and cliffs and and beasts and and trials that are going to come along our way. And you you look at the other mountain across the way and think, man, I don't know how we're ever going to get that way. Sometimes God... Sometimes God removes the mountain in our life. He says, okay, I'm just going to move this trial out of your way. But sometimes he comes up alongside you with his backpack on, and he's like, all right, put your backpack on. We're going to climb this thing. 
and he's with you the whole way. And that's our life, isn't it? Blessings and trials and seasons. In verse eight, Jesus continues. He says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The word for speedily, it means shortly, quickly, and soon. And this is kind of a, a heart check right here when Jesus asks this. When the Son of Man comes, that's referring to the Messiah, that's himself. When Jesus returns, will he find, will he really find faith on the earth? Now, of course, Jesus knows the answer to this question. But there is a warning here with him asking the question. There's a warning here that some people are going to lose hope in his return. And today we are waiting for Christ's return. You've heard, heard it said, oh, my grandparents used to say that Jesus was going to come back. And he's not here today. And when I hear people say that, I, I, I'm like, yeah, Paul thought Jesus was going to come back. And it's been a thousand years later. And, and time goes on and people are like, oh, well, it's all, people have always believed that. And I believe that God wants every generation to believe that they are right before the rapture to come where Jesus is going to return for his church so that we can be ready. But there is going to be a day, a day that's going to come. And Jesus said, like in the days of Noah, everyone's going to be marrying and, 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 and just being like normal and, and going about their daily business, like nothing's going to happen. And then suddenly in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus is going to come back for his church. We'll be caught up with him in the clouds. So we're waiting for that. Where? Is our redemption then for the world that has inflicted pain on us and persecution and the abuse toward believers? When is God going to deliver us? Sometimes we think. How long are we going to wait, God? I have a verse that I pray gives you hope this morning. In Romans chapter 12, verse 12, it says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, Continuing steadfastly in prayer. So this is what we need to be doing then. To rejoice, to be hopeful, to endure this trial, to be long-suffering and important, continue steadfastly in prayer. Today many are allowing the works of the flesh to overtake the church and we're leaving prayer we're stepping back from prayer and we're trying to do everything in our flesh, which is wrong. And there's no power when, when we're stepping away from the Holy Spirit to do works of ourself. In Ian Bounds' book, Power Through Prayer, I encourage you guys, if you guys want to encourage yourself in prayer, there's a book by Ian Bounds called Power Through Prayer, which is a really classic book on prayer. But I have a quote here that I'll read to you guys. Ian Bound says this, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, 
but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. So you see, we need to have the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Otherwise, we're just doing things in the flesh and we're making all these plans apart from God's leading. And we're wondering why we're so frustrated sometimes. Let's look at verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. So now Jesus is pointing out a problem with trusting yourself, which leads me, leads me to my second point this morning. Point number two, humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before God. You see, in our own righteousness, to God, he says it's like filthy rags. In fact, Isaiah the prophet spoke against Israel, saying that their righteousness was like filthy rags. You're like, filthy rags? Yeah, if you guys want to go a little bit deeper in your Bible study for extra credit, go find out what filthy rags means in the Old Testament and see how God views self-righteousness. That word for despised, when it says, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. The word for despise, it has to do with contempt. It's feeling someone is beneath them or worthless. And who is Jesus saying this to? Who is Jesus giving these parables to? Is he saying it to atheists right there? No, he's not saying it to atheists. Was Jesus right here giving these parables to the pagan people of his time? No, he wasn't giving it to the pagans. Was he preaching to the Romans here? Nope. What about the rebellious Jews? No, he's not even preaching to them. Who's he teaching? The religious leaders. If that's not a heart check for myself, I don't know what it would be. This is why John the Baptist would preach to Israel there in the wilderness. He would cry out, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And when he was preaching to these people, when he was using the, the idea of the wilderness. He wasn't talking about the literal wilderness that he was in. He was talking about the wilderness that Israel had now become. With the religious leaders, they were to be instruments of God to promote holiness, to be a light to the world. But then Jesus, when he came, he said they were like tombs with dead man's bones in them. So yeah, they were a wilderness now at this point. In the wilderness, you have a lot of dry bushes. There's, no, there's not that living water that's flowing out in the wilderness. But Jesus came to be, be that living water in the wilderness. God's chosen people, Israel, they had lost their way. And how did they get so far off? And I look around and I look at churches even today. And I ask myself, 
Do I see revival or do I see compromise? Do I see people on fire for the Lord or do I see people allowing idols to be placed in their life? And then I have to realize that I cannot bring my own righteousness to the table because we know how God views that. So we need God to place his son's righteousness on our lives and in our hearts. Because when I put my focus on God, I do begin to see revival in people's hearts. I see revival at hand. You've heard that phrase, spiritual revival, it starts with you. Draw a circle around, your star- around yourself. That's where the revival needs to begin. But if we would just stop squandering the gifts that God has given us, you guys have purpose. You have a, a plan for your life and God wants to sanctify you for this plan. He wants us to take away the filthy rags of self-righteousness and give us Christ's righteousness. And there's an acronym, a, a second acronym I'm going to give you guys this morning. It's GRACE, G-R-A-C-E. And that is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. It's unmerited favor, blessing that we cannot earn by our own works. In verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. Now he's beginning the the parable here. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So now there's two characters that Jesus introduces. The first one was the religious leader, the Pharisee. And the second was a tax collector, if you guys do not know. Tax collectors to the Jews were like traitors. Because the Roman government would hire a Jew to then go to all his other Jewish brothers and tax them. And the Roman government would a little bit take care of that one tax collector as the tax collector was collecting all the funds to then go give to the Roman government. So the Jews hated the tax collectors because they're like, why are you working for Rome? They have us under captivity. How dare you betray us, your brothers? So now these are the two people. We have the religious leader and the tax collector, the traitor to Israel. But remember, even Matthew was a tax collector before Jesus met him. And then in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. So first, the the religious leader, the Pharisee, is now judging others, looking at their messed up hearts and he's looking at them with his own messed up heart. It reminds me of the way Jesus said, look, if you see something wrong in your brother, first go remove the the four by four out of your eye, the plank of wood that's sticking in your eye and then go and help your brother take the little speck out of his eye. And there's that illustration there. Sometimes it's so easy for us to see bad things in other people, isn't it? Especially if it's similar to a struggle that we've had. But Jesus was explaining to us, look, first go deal with yourself. 
before you try to correct anyone else. This is the way that this religious leader was viewing sinners. It was in a condemning way. And how are we supposed to give people truth? How are we supposed to correct people? With love, right? Judgment and correction, there is a purpose for it. You've probably heard people say, oh, you can't judge me, brother. Only God can judge me, right? People say, oh, your Bible says not to judge. Doesn't it? It says not to judge in the Bible, right? Well, you're, you're taking the Bible out of context there. See, the Bible does teach about judging with righteous judgment. And the purpose and the correction for judgment is for what? For restoration to God. We are to bring, bring people in a spirit of gentleness to God. And it's not just to t- stand outside and tell people that, look, they're going to hell, and it's not hate. We want to draw people in with love. That's why even, too, more recently when I was... I got to be with my family this, uh, this past Christmas. I, I don't preach to them. I don't. When there's an opportunity, someone brings up a question, and, and I see the Holy Spirit moving, I will give people truth. And I love to be, give people truth with love and to correct. But I, I don't go over there and start giving a, a sermon to my family. Jesus said, well, don't cast your pearls before swine. Now, my family, I'm not calling them swine. Much love. Jesus said in verse 12, continuing the parable, look at this religious leader. Look at what the religious leader says in verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So now he's talking about works here. And this is a works-based relationship. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, Paul had to correct the Galatian church on living on a works-based relationship with God. He says in Galatians 3, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the flesh, the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And he had to correct them. Look, they were going back to the way of trying to relate to God through their works. And that's something that we should never do. There's cults out there that will tell you, look, in order for you to be saved, it's Jesus plus whatever, plus works, plus, plus something else. And that's not true. We're saved by grace through faith. And God wants love to come from a pure motive and a joyful heart. He wants our works to be pure. So let's stop trying to earn God's goodness in our life. Stop trying to work for God. It's like an insurance account sometimes we have. Okay, we'll check in with the Lord now. That way I have my salvation. We're still good. And then I just do things out of, it's a transaction. No, we need to do things out of a pure motive. And then in verse 13. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So first thing now I, I, that I notice about this second character in this parable, the tax collector, is his humility. He's standing afar off because he feels like he's not worthy to be close. And he want, it's not even so much as raising his eyes to heaven. He's not trying to keep his head held high before the Lord, but he's honest before God. He's asking for mercy, and he's acknowledging that he is a sinner. And this is the heart that we are to have, that we're called to have, to be humble, to be honest with the Lord, to invite the Lord into wherever we're at. You guys see the difference here now between mercy and grace? You see, mercy is not getting what you deserve, a punishment that you deserve and it being refrained from being placed upon you. But grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. And I have found freedom in being honest with God in my sins of being, Lord, you see that I've failed, I've messed up. And I need you to show me the way. I've felt like Paul when Paul would explain, look, the things that I want to do for the Lord, those things I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I practice. And every time I see God showing me the same path to freedom, and it's always through Christ. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That word for justified. It's just as if you've never done anything wrong. And the the latter, the man who was the tax collector, the supposed traitor to Israel, was the one who went down just as if he never did anything wrong. And he was humbled. And there's the warning for us. Look, don't exalt yourself, but humble yourself and God will lift you up. That's putting God first. You see, humility is also too. Keep in mind, humility is not thinking less or not thinking bad about yourself. That's not what humility is. That's condemnation and we're not called to condemnation. Humility is simply not thinking about yourself, putting, others, putting God first, putting others first. And then in verse 15. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So one of the things I see in this situation is the disciples, the guys who are supposed to be closest to Jesus and know, be in the same heart and the same mind of Jesus, as there's these crowds of people and they want these little kids to run up to Jesus so that he can touch them. The disciples are the first ones to be like, hey, hey, stay away from the master. Hey, no, 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 don't get close. Don't come, don't come near Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't stop them from coming. 
So I recognize here, there's a disconnect between the disciple's mind and Jesus' heart and mind. And I realize one thing that the disciples were missing at this point of time in their life was the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit didn't come until after Jesus was crucified, died, and was resurrected. And he said, tarry in Jerusalem, wait there, and the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and he's going to lead you and guide you in all ways. And the Holy Spirit proclaims my name, Jesus said. So these disciples, sometimes I, I think they get a bad rap. as like, Man, these guys were just knuckleheads, never got it right with the Lord. But keep in mind, they were trying the best that they could without the power of the Holy Spirit leading them. And Jesus, when he says, look, let the little children come to me, that leads me to my third point, my last point for the study this morning. Point three, grow in childlike faith. See, things that we don't understand now and things that we didn't understand before, I realize God hasn't called us to understand everything. He simply wants us to believe on him, to believe in his son, Jesus. You guys have heard me said this before, but like when I think of what it is to have childlike faith, I, I look at my nieces and my nephews and some of your grandchildren, the way that they have childlike faith and they become little suiciders as they run off the bed and make that leap of faith. And you're just like, what are you guys doing? And the parent knows he's got to catch them. Got to just grab them, right? Because they have childlike faith, right? They just think, I could j- jump off this bed. I could jump off this table. And nothing's going to hurt me. That's the childlike faith. Especially if their dad's close by, right? Or their mom. And they could catch them, bring them up. And Jesus says, look, come to me with that simple belief. That simple faith that I love you. That I'm going to catch you. That I have a plan for your life. That I want good for you. And that's how we are now to grow in this. We're to grow in humility as a child. We're to grow in prayer, asking for our heavenly father for things the way a son, a daughter would ask their father, their good dad. So we see grow in childlike faith. To be humble before the Lord. And not to grow weary in prayer. Let's end with prayer this morning.